one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is a very special episode of the Talking Space Podcast, and for it, I am joined by Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Sawyer, I have been looking forward to this all week since we started planning this. I can't wait. And welcome as well, joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here, and it's always fun to talk about some of this neat stuff with some really sharp, excited, fascinating people. Oh yeah, talking about neat stuff indeed coming up. Also joining us today on our very special episode is someone who works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, except his job is driving rovers. He has driven both Spirit and Opportunity, the Mars Exploration Rovers, or MERS, and he will be driving the Curiosity Rover, or the Mars Science Laboratory, once that lands on Mars in August. So please welcome back to the show, Scott Maxwell. Hey, everybody. So nice to be here. Great to have you back with us. So last time you were here was back in 2010. And, uh, we has were it talk- been that long? That's way too long. <laughs> yes, it actually has been that long. But uh, when we spoke with you then, the big thing we were talking about was the Save Spirit campaign. And unfortunately, afterwards, Spirit is not working. But I was kind of wondering what was being done at the end, you know, to try and save Spirit and... Uh, what was the reaction in the office after, you know, it was officially declared inoperative? Um, well, uh, there was we were doing a lot to save spirit. Um, so I don't know if your your audience uh, knows the whole story, but um, uh, just for, for the sake of background, for people who might not know, Spirit had been a five-wheeled rover for some time. About two years into her 90-day mission, her right front wheel broke. And uh, nearly seven years, uh, so, so six to seven years into her 90-day mission, we were driving her uh, south through a little valley uh, to an area called uh, two two things called Goddard and von Braun, and um, uh, Spirit, you know, she was she was dragging that right front wheel, and the other wheels were kind of working harder uh, on the soil beneath her, and she kind of broke through what turned out to be this crusty surface. Um, like an ice skater falling to the surface of a pond and into the uh, the kind of fluffier dust beneath. Um, and this is very much like, uh, this is really nasty uh, soil. This is very much like um, you put your hand in a bag of flour um, and you, you, you kind of get a sense of what that uh, that's like. Um, well, imagine filling up a swimming pool full of flour and dropping your car down in the middle of it and then trying to drive your car out. That's what it was like trying to drive spirit in this stuff. Um, so we went down, we um, basically uh, built a test facility, me- mixed up a batch of, uh, of this material that we thought was going to act like the material spirit was trapped in, and then tried our driving our test rover into and out of it. Um, we came up with a uh, strategy that we thought was going to get spirit out, 
And just as we started implementing that strategy and everything was going great, everything was going spot on Predix, um, Spirit was, uh, was performing exactly like we hoped, another wheel broke. So now, instead of having five wheels and an anchor, we have four wheels and two anchors. Um, and instead of having all the time in the world to plan because we're in the middle of Martian summer, instead we're at this point where the you know, Martian winter is coming and we've got to just fly by the seat of our pants. So we, uh, we, we came up with, we basically wrote down a list of other stuff that we thought was going to work. And we uh, eventually found a, uh, an approach that was uh, working to get Spirit out. Where she was sort of sort of swimming out of this material by by tilting her wheels out, and that would kind of push her back a little bit, and then we'd run them to build up another pile of material and tilt them back a little bit, and so on. Um, and uh, and you know this was, was amazingly a four wheeled rover uh, uh, was driving herself out of a bag of flour on Mars, um, but we just ran out of time. It, she was she was maybe two weeks away from uh, from success. We just just couldn't quite make it. Um, Martian winter came, we, we just didn't have the energy to drive anymore. We had to shut spirit down. And all we really know for sure is that spirit appears never to have waken up again. We, we spent, um, about 10 months or so on a really long extended campaign to really try to, you know, everything we could possibly think of that, that might've gone wrong with her. Uh, we tried to wake her up and, um, you know, Spirit had had always just been, done a great job for us, and had always been there for us. And we really tried to give her every possible chance, but we just were never able to raise her again. Your your other question was about uh, what it was like around the office, and you know, the the funny thing is, it was kind of a, a long, slow thing. So it wasn't like a uh, something that was really you know had an obvious kind of finality to it. Like you just come in one day and she's not there. Instead, it was more like a kind of long, slow, over the course of several months, kind of dawning realization that, you know, her odds were not looking good and not looking good and not looking good. And then she just kind of we just kind of gave up in the end. We sort of trailed off as much as anything. And it's really sad. Uh, You know, Spirit, uh, she overcame tremendous obstacles in her life. Um, she was very much the underdog rover, and and she had to work for everything that she got in her life, and um, uh, she she really earned her name uh, Spirit because she had a lot of spirit, and uh, and it's it's a sad thing that she's not there anymore. But honestly, um, and I think I'm representative in this um, as somebody who loves Spirit as much as anybody. Uh, mingled in with the sadness that she's gone is an, an enormous amount of pride in what she did and what she managed to accomplish. And, and she found herself in very unpromising circumstances. Um, and she really made the most of them. She found among the best evidence of past Martian water that we have ever found with either rover. Um, and this is a rover who, you know, kind of landed in, in a spot where we really didn't think that she was going to have that kind of success, um, or, or at least we didn't think that uh, once she opened her eyes on Mars. And so to have, you know, really stuck with it and through, through persistence to have really overcome and, and managed to, to make that kind of uh, achievement is, is a wonderful thing. And I can just, I, I, as, as much sadness as I have when I think back on her, I have even more pride. So um, where exactly is Goddard and Von Braun located on Mars, just so we have an idea um, okay, so Spirit uh, landed um, toward the, the west of this feature called Husband Hill, um, and uh, she went and climbed Husband Hill, and Goddard and Von Braun, uh, are, which is a, a hill, by the, by the way, the height of the Statue of Liberty. So this is a little rover that's you know not meant to go over anything bigger than um, um, uh, maybe a big watermelon. Um, who's climbing a hill the height of the Statue of Liberty. She had to. That's where, that's where the evidence of water that she came to Mars for was. Um, and uh, then she went kind of down the, the south side of, Goddard, uh, of, of Husband Hill 
And to the south of Husband Hill uh, is a feature called Home Plate, which is a big, it looks like a home plate on a baseball diamond from orbit. Um, and Spirit spent a good time uh, exploring around there. And Goddard and Von Braun were to the south of Home Plate, so she was just continuing her trek south from there. So how far did Spirit end up going? Uh, Spirit ended up doing uh, about, uh, Spirit was designed for 600 meters to one kilometer. So that is 0.6 to 1.0 kilometers on Mars. Um, and she traveled uh, nearly eight kilometers on Mars, 7.7, 7.8, something like that, kilometers on Mars. Um, and a good chunk of that was with a gimpy wheel, too. So she, uh, she, was, she was determined to not let that slow her down too much. That, that's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> so uh, Spirit uh, is not currently functioning, but Opportunity, though, has been going for 100 months now? Uh, yeah, just about that. Um, yeah, we are coming up on our uh, 3,000 Sol celebration in, I think it's around July 1st. Um, and remember, this is, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're designed for about three months on the surface, right? Uh, and here we are, uh, we're, we're looking at eight and a half years, uh, as you say, you know, from three months to 100 months. Um not only has Opportunity lived about uh, 30-something times as long as she was supposed to, she's gone about 30-something times as far as she was supposed to. Um, she was also designed for the same distance, 600 meters to one kilometer. Um, and she has gone something over 34 kilometers on the surface of Mars and, uh, and, and had to kind of sit tight for the last uh, Martian winter, so for yeah, four or five months, something like that. Um, we have just gotten her back on the road, and the, the really exciting thing about this, the really cool thing about this, is um, the all-time extraterrestrial distance record is held by the Soviet rover uh, Lunokhod 2, uh, which roved around the moon in the 1970s. A uh, very impressive piece of technology, roved around the moon in the 1970s, and uh, it has traveled uh, for it, it traveled for 37 kilometers. So Spirit, uh, sorry, Opportunity is uh, coming right up on that uh, that record and uh, and looks to uh, to to break that record at some point, um, probably in the next Martian year, and become the uh, the longest traveled extraterrestrial vehicle ever. Hey Scott, uh, I got a question. I know that that you've worked for a long time with with operating the rovers. Yep. And and this kind of goes into hardware, and I know I'm sure you've seen the hardware as well. What do you attribute the fact that the rovers have done so phenomenally beyond what they were designed for? Well, part of it, um, I I won't lie to you. Part of it is just plain luck. Um, <laughs> part of it is you know Mars coming along and doing something that we didn't know Mars would do because we'd never seen it do this on any previous mission. Mars comes along every once in a while, you know, rains dust out of the atmosphere in our solar panels, um, same as you know dust builds up on your coffee table. Um, but every once in a while, Mars comes along, Martian winds come along and blow that dust back off. And sometimes the Martian winds blow dust onto it, but usually the Martian winds will blow dust off. Um, so we've, we've had a little bit of help from, uh, from simply from the environment, from the, from the Martian environment. Um, but another uh, large part of it, another really important part of it, is um, it's kind of hard to describe this. I'm not really ever sure how to, quite how to put this, but um, working on Murr was the best team experience that I've ever had in my life. Um, and it really had this property that, like, Everybody, I always felt on Murr like I had been, I was this kid who was playing pickup basketball in the corner and then he wakes up and he's like playing with the LA Lakers and I don't know how I got here, but everybody around me is really good and I'd better like step up and bring my A game. Um, 
And I think everybody else really kind of felt the same way. Everybody else kind of looked around and said, wow, I'm with these world, these amazing world-class people, these, these great mechanical engineers and uh, uh, electrical engineers and computer scientists and, and, and geologists. And everybody's really like not only world-class, but really doing the best job that, that, that they can do. And I don't want to be the one to let the team down. And so everything that we did with the rovers was just done to a, a really high degree of perfection. We would order more parts for the rovers that we needed and then test all of them and pick the very best ones out of the set. So we would you know, go to the manufacturers and tell them, hey, your part can be on the Mars rovers. And they would give us the best batch that they had. And then we would like test from that batch and pick the very best ones. And so everything about the rovers was, you know, everybody was kind of bringing their A game and doing their best job and selecting the best possible hardware that we could. Part of that was we really thought that we were going to have 90 days on the surface and the outrageous optimists would maybe go, you know, double that or so. But we didn't really know what the Martian conditions were going to be. And so we really tried to, like, make everything about the rovers as robust as it possibly could be so we would have the best possible chance of surviving for those 90 days. Well, when we got to Mars, we didn't have the worst possible circumstances. So a lot of that extra engineering turns into extra life on the surface. So it's kind of it's kind of a combination of all of those things. Um, uh, not just luck, but also just really good, high-quality the, you know, the, the best in the world, world-class engineering as well. That's interesting because it really brings uh, kind of a full definition to what it means to to have something custom-made or handmade or, oh, yeah. you know, hand-picked. And that's part of the, you know, it's part of the game of building spacecraft. You're building these kind of custom-built uh, one-off solutions to a problem. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Everything, you know, the rovers were designed from scratch to just be awesome Mars rovers. Scott, hi, Gene McCulkey here. First, I want to say thanks for uh, for taking the time to to that you're taking to spend with us here here today. Oh, absolutely! Thank you guys for so much. I appreciate it. I had an opportunity question here. It's more of a a, a question about its current condition and uh, oh. and what the game plan is going to be going forward for this season. Well, uh, now that we are driving opportunity again, um, so uh, we had to spend the winter with the rover parked with uh, her solar panels pointed north of the sun. So she's in the southern hemisphere. The, the sun goes north for the winter. Um, and now the sun is, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of getting into winter and into Martian spring. And so the sun is kind of wandering back to the south. Um, and so what this does is it opens up a wider and wider range for us um, that we can explore. So uh, to survive the, the, the winter, we had to have a northerly tilt of about five degrees. Um, and now that northerly tilt that we can explore is, you know, we can go anywhere where we have a northerly tilt of about zero degrees. And basically that, um, so Opportunity is parked on the north side of this feature called Cape York. And essentially we've kind of opened up uh, the whole north side of Cape York. So we can now go exploring around the whole north side of Cape York. And as we get later and later and later into the year, more and more and more possibilities will be open to us. And, and pretty soon, uh, in another yeah, couple of months or so, a uh, month or two, um, we won't really care about northerly tilts at all anymore. We'll be able to go anywhere we darn well please. Um, so for now, uh, while we can, we're going to explore around the north side of Cape York. The next step is going to be when we can go a little bit beyond this. We, we came to Endeavor Crater in the first place for these minerals called phyllosilicates, which are these clay minerals. Um, and these clay minerals form in the presence of pH-neutral water. Um, so obviously this is kind of a mother load uh, for us. This is the kind of stuff that we went to Mars for. And... 
from orbit, we see signatures of what we think is this stuff, these phyllosilicates, on the eastern side of Cape York. So, uh, so as we get a little, you know, as our as our range grows, that we're allowed to kind of play in, we'll kind of go down to where that material is on the eastern side of of Cape York. Um, and look for the clays there. In any case, whether we find them there or not, um, from orbit we can see signs of a just a gigantic deposit of these materials um, well to the south of us uh, at this place called Cape Tribulation. Um, so when we get uh, far enough in, in the year that we don't care about where we go, we can go anywhere we darn well please, um, we'll probably scoot south to Cape Tribulation, which is about a kilometer and a half, two kilometers, something like that to the south of us. Um, and going exploring around there. Um, Cape Tribulation, one of the cool things about that is it's another real hill. So we'll be able to bring back all that uh, wonderful experience that we got uh, driving Spirit up Husband Hill. We'll be able to use um, to sort of drive uh, opportunity around Cape Tribulation. And um, uh, what we hope to find there is um, this gigantic deposit of phyllosilicates and therefore uh, really good evidence of a, a past very different Mars. We found stuff like that before. We found uh, carbonaceous materials that Spirit found on her side of Mars. And on Opportunity side of Mars, we hope to find the same thing. The really exciting thing about that will be just because Spirit found this material, well, that's evidence of this stuff at one place in Mars, a pH neutral water at one place in Mars. And that's good. But if you can drop two rovers in two places on Mars that are uh, basically on opposite sides of the planet, like one in Martian Texas and one in Martian China, and both of them can find evidence of pH neutral water, then you know you're talking about a global process. You're talking about a planet that at one time had pH neutral water probably all over it. Um, and, uh, and that will be a, 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 a great kind of scientific uh, feather in our cap. How do you have to go ahead and baby opportunity? Because I know she's probably showing her wear and tear at this point. And what things do you have to um, just kind of sort of be careful of as you're as you're sort of driving this vehicle around Mars? Uh, yeah, well, um, uh, one thing I want you to bear in mind is that opportunity is around thirty-something uh, times her design lifespan, and if you make it to something like thirty. 30 odd times your design lifespan and you only have the problems that opportunity is having, you're doing pretty well. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you can, I if only you can, wish. Yeah. If you can make it to be like 3000 years old and you just have a little ache and pain in your shoulder, you're, you, you don't have too much to, uh, to be sorry about. So opportunity has, um, uh, from my perspective as a Rover driver, opportunity has two, uh, well, really kind of three big problems. Uh, when she landed, she had a stuck on uh, heater uh, on uh, the shoulder joint on her robotic arm. And that subjected the robotic arm to that, that joint of that arm to more extreme thermal stresses than on the rest of the vehicle. Um, and as a result, that uh, shoulder joint failed. So we can no longer move the arm to the left or right anymore. It's kind of stuck at this uh, uh, position, just very slightly left of center. So, so uh, that's not too much of a problem for us, uh, but it does kind of limit what what we're able to do with the arm. Um, the great thing, of course, is that we're a rover. So if you really want to get just a little to the right, you know, you want to reach something with the arm that's just a little to the right or a little to the left, we can move the whole vehicle. Um, not as convenient as just moving the arm. It takes another extra day and so on to, to, to drive. But, you, you know, we can work around it. Um, uh, the second big problem that we have uh, from a rover driver's perspective is um, that we have to uh, – um, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you this first um, – both rovers landed with a uh, drill at the end of the arm, um, a diamond drill called the Rat. Um, it was built for us by Honeybee Corporation. And um, there's a cable that carries signals from the end of the arm back to uh, the inside of the vehicle. 
um, well, uh, the vehicle has been on Mars so long. We've used the, the thing so long that, uh, that some of those uh, cable wires are breaking, and they're breaking in a very predictable order. And some of the wires that broke are the wires that carry information back about the rat, the drill at the end of the arm. Um, so uh, we've actually found workarounds for that that are uh, amazing. Uh, uh, these two guys, uh, uh, Matt Heverly and Joe Karsten, two of the rover drivers, did an amazing job figuring out a way to work around the fact that the signals we're getting back from the end of the arm really uh, aren't working and find a way that we were able to use the RAD instrument anyway um, by using these kind of lower level commands. Um, so it's a little more cumbersome to actually do that when we want to drill, uh, but we are able to do it. And, and the fact that we, you know, that capability is preserved is, is a real just testament to just amazing engineering work on their parts. Um, the third and most serious uh, or, or most significant uh, issue with opportunity is uh, that we have to drive her only backward. Um, we uh, there's something funny going on in her right front wheel, and we don't know what it is that's going on in her right front wheel, but it, it exhibits a higher current draw than the rest of the wheels, and uh, we found that it only does that when we drive her forward. So if we drive her backward, that wheel kind of stays in line with the rest of the wheels. We don't know why this is, but it is, and so we just kind of only drive her backward, and that puts a few limits on what we do with her, but it's not really too much because the rovers were designed to drive equally well backwards as forwards, and so it doesn't really kind of mess things up for us too much. Um, there are other things wrong with opportunity, uh, that don't affect me as much from a rover driver perspective. Um, the most serious of which is that we've, um, apparently, uh, lost functionality on, uh, the mini test instrument. So this is an instrument that can kind of look around opportunity and from a distance, it tells you, uh, the, from the heat signature that's coming off of rocks or soil, what's probably in those rocks or soil. And so whether they're interesting enough for you to drive over to, um, that doesn't really seem to work anymore. Uh, that instrument doesn't. And so, um, uh, that's a little bit of a loss for us as well. Um, but, uh, and there, you know, there's a few other things wrong with opportunity. There's some, some dust in her camera lenses and so on. Um, but, uh, but overall, uh, you know, if, if we had landed the Rover in, uh, the state that she's in now, we would still have been able to do the primary mission with her. And that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to say, uh, a factor of 30 beyond, uh, where we ever thought we were going to, uh, uh, be with this Rover. Wow! Talk about getting more bang for your buck. That's, that's yeah, absolutely that's amazing. And, and you know, part, of the, mean, part of the part of the part of the great thing about this is, from a, from a simple cost perspective, mo most of the cost of a mission like this, virtually all the cost of a mission like this, goes into um, the the early phases of the mission, designing this custom one-off solution to explore another planet. Well, that takes a lot of money. Testing it takes a lot of money. Iterating the design takes a lot of money. Uh, launch costs alone take a lot of money. Uh, launch costs uh, for these for these vehicles were two hundred million dollars out of an eight hundred million dollar budget. Um, so a quarter of the the cost of the whole cost of the mission just went in going from you know getting ourselves out of the gravity well of Earth. By comparison, operations is really cheap. You know, to do things properly on this mission um, is is twenty million a year. We actually get about twelve million a year from NASA. And so it's really cheap. And so the great thing about this is every saw on Mars costs less money as you go along. Um, we initially figured the cost of this mission, um, the amortized cost of this mission was around $4 million per day. Um, that is $800 million 
uh, a total of about 200 days on Mars between the rovers, about $4 million per day. We've been on Mars so long and we're so cheap, the extended missions are so cheap, that uh, the cost is down to something like $200,000 a day and dropping. Every day we, uh, every day we survive on Mars uh, is cheaper. I'm not really a gambler, but uh, just to, to just wonder, how long do you think Opportunity's got there? And, uh, you know, given all of her little aches and pains and so on, and the fact that you got to go ahead and drive her backward, how long do you think she's got over there? Uh, everybody who's bet against her so far has lost. And <laughs> if, you want to, if you want to be the next one to lose your money, I will happily take your bet. Uh, heck no. I mean, I'm, 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 hope, I'm hoping this thing goes for as, you know, heck, I hope it, it, it just, I hope it outlives me, quite frankly. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very much hopeful that I'll be able to retire on this mission. I must be doing something <laughs> wrong because nobody ever takes that bet. <laughs> I'm the sucker bet. Not going to bet against that thing. <laughs> I, I know. Personally, I have, I have made them. Like, I have this rule, never bet against the rovers. And every once in a while, I'm dumb enough to break the rule. And every time I break that rule, I lose. You would think <laughs> I would learn. <laughs> now, Opportunity isn't going to be the only rover on Mars in the coming months. There's uh, the Mars Science Laboratory or Curiosity is coming along as well, right? That is correct. I believe you're also going to be one of the drivers on that. Am I right? Uh, I am currently on the driving team for that rover, so we'll see. Um, I'm uh, certainly hopeful that, yes, I will get to uh, drive that rover around on Mars. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so how is your training so far for the driving of MSL compared to what you did for the MERS, the rovers? That's a, that's a really good question. When it came to the MER rovers, honest to God, uh, looking back on it, when we landed, um, if you, like gave me somebody who was as ready to drive that rover um, uh, as I actually was then, I would not let that person anywhere near my Mars rover. That would be insane. Um, looking back on it, we knew so much less and we were so much less ready for that than we thought we were. But the thing is, nobody was ready for that because virtually nobody had done it. There were only a couple of people who had done it and they were already on the team. And the rest of us just kind of had to make it up as we went along. Uh, what I'm coming into MSL with um, – is uh, a great deal of experience on the surface of Mars. So I have a lot of experience with the tactical process. I have a lot of experience with the kind of things that we find on Mars and the kind of things you need to do to work with the science team and so on. And in some ways, um, the rover itself is simpler to operate than Spirit and Opportunity were. We've taken a whole bunch of things that on Spirit and Opportunity would take many, many commands to do, and we've made them into one command on this rover. So a great example of that um, would be uh, on Spirit and Opportunity when you want to get uh, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to do a precision approach, so you're trying to get something in the arm work volume so that you can reach out and touch it with the robotic arm. Well, you drive a little way towards it, and then you kind of, like, do this thing that corrects your position, and you see how much you slipped, and then you, like, do a little more to, like, drive a little way towards it, and you do the little thing to correct for your slip and so on, and you keep iterating on this until you've actually gotten there, and this takes a lot of commands to do. You have to send a lot of commands to the rover that says, like, go a little bit forward, and depending on how far you have to go, like, go a little bit farther or go a little bit shorter distance and so on. And then, like, do the thing to correct your position and then do that all over again and then do it all over again and so on until you've done it enough times. Um, on the new rover, on MSL, um, the team who was building that rover learned from our experience on the old rovers and have cut that down to just one command. So what will actually just – you can – instead of sending lots and lots and lots of commands to do this, you just send it one command. So that's great. Um, in other ways, though, this is a more complicated rover and operating it is, is just plain harder. Um, so, uh, so, so in some ways it's an easier Rover in some ways it's a much harder Rover. Um, I think that probably when we land, 
for a little while, we're going to find ourselves in much the same position as we were on Spirit and Opportunity, where we're just sort of faking our way through it. Um, and, uh, and over time, we'll just sort of grow into it. And if we're really lucky, nobody will notice that we did that. <laughs> Scott, the, are, are there any type of really handling characteristics that are kind of different between uh, Opportunity and, and Curiosity? Cur- curiosity, obviously, is a heck of a lot bigger. I mean, you're, you're dealing with something the size of a Mini Cooper, just about. But are, is there anything... In, in the handling characteristics that, that are different? Well, fortunately, they're kind of similar. Um, they're, they're not the same, and I'll get to some of the differences, but they're kind of, they're broadly similar. Um, they drive at about the same rate, um, uh, and, uh, um, and they can climb similar kinds of, of slopes and so on and similar kind of terrain. Um, it's a much bigger rover, uh, and it's much heavier, but the, the wheel patch is bigger, where the wheel actually interacts with the ground is bigger, so the ground pressure is about the same. And because of that, uh, broad, they're, they're very broadly similar. Um, there are a few differences, and the differences that we've found so far work mostly in favor of MSL. Uh, we were just out in uh, Death Valley, uh, geez, was that last week, um, doing uh, some testing out there um, uh, in sand dunes and driving around in sand dunes. And so we took the, uh, the Mars weight uh, Mer rover out there and the Mars weight Scarecrow rover out there, and... Um, and we found that uh, uh, MSL, the MSL rover can actually handle a little better slopes. The Spirit and Opportunity analog uh, tops out at around 12 degrees in sandy soil. Um, it can't climb and can't successfully climb anything that's much steeper than that. And that's a well-known characteristic of, of those rovers. If you would ask me to pick a number, I would have picked about 12. Um, and, uh, and in fact, that's exactly what we saw. Uh, but MSL was able to go up to about 17 degrees, um, depending on whom you ask, about 17 to 20 in the same terrain. Uh, and there we're getting a little bit of advantage out of the mere fact that the wheels are bigger and they're actually presenting a kind of bigger patch. And so they, they're actually able to grip the ground a little bit better. So a little bit better, but kind of like if you step back and look at it, it's in the same family. It's not like we went from 12 to 30. We went from 12 to 17. So it's, it's kind of roughly, roughly the same. I kind of love too on the the little the little thing with the tires that you guys have on there. Uh, if I remember, right. um, yeah. I, I should probably tell that story. So yeah, um, please. Uh, on MSL, um, we wanted to make the wheels. Um, basically, we wanted to to, to make them uh, have a kind of a, a weird pattern in them, so that when we look back at them for tracks and we have to kind of measure how far we've gone, um, we wouldn't get uh, the the rover wouldn't get confused by kind of picket fence effect, where you see a kind of repeating pattern and you're not really sure you know where to kind of shift that um, pattern. We wanted to have that be as unpredictable as possible. So um, the first step in that process was to actually put the letters JPL um, in the wheels so that we would kind of leave those letters in the wheel tracks as we drove along. NASA came along, though, and got really mad at us for doing that and said, you're not allowed to have JPL in the wheels. We don't like this kind of branding thing that you're doing. Um, And so you're not allowed to have that. And so instead, they took a step back from that and they said, "Okay, well, you know, you don't want us to do that, NASA. We won't do that. And they came up with a series of um, an un, uh, a sort of uh, uh, randomish pattern of uh, holes and kind of spaces between the holes and the wheels. Um, uh, and so that's the pattern that we leave. Now, it just so happens by what I'm sure is a complete coincidence that that pattern of like holes and spaces between the holes in Morse code, it spells JPL. Uh, Scott, back on driving, um, are there any carryovers or similarities with the uh, the commands or or, or such from from MER and MSL? And I remember reading in your in your blog about uh, how you had safety limits for like uh, angle of 
angle of attack may be up or down and are there safety limits are they similar can you talk about that first of all are the driving commands uh the same they are largely the same um uh, the team who uh, uh, did the mobility stuff uh, for MSL um, did a really good job uh, with it. And so they have um, done a good job of trying to like kind of simplify and regularize the, the command set a little bit um, and to try to learn from our experiences on Mer and, and make things that, you know, we were doing with lots of commands on Mer, be a single command on this rover and that kind of thing. To some extent, you get into a, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem that the generals always fight the last war. And so I'm sure that when we get to Mars, Mars will surprise us and we'll come up with stuff that, you know, um, uh, despite our best efforts, we'll have to do with lots of commands with this rover instead. But they're, they're taking their very best shot at uh, trying to simplify things for us. As a general thing, as a rover driver, uh, the command set on these vehicles is largely similar to the one that we had on Spirit and Opportunity. So it didn't really take a whole lot of work to get up to speed on, on how to drive this rover and the kind of basics of, of driving this rover. Um, uh, mostly it was a process of learning um, which little shortcuts have been put in and, you know, how to, kind of how to use them effectively. And that's a really nice problem to have, all things considered. Um, the uh, uh, problems that we have with uh, uh, safety limits and so on was your, the other part of that question. Um, and, again, those are kind of broadly, for, from the mobility perspective, those are kind of broadly the same. Um, so a good example of that would be something like tilt. Um, as you are uh, driving around on the surface of Mars, you know, you expect to go up to tilts of, let's say, 10 degrees. And you tell the rover, well, you know, I'm kind of expecting you to go up to tilts of about 10 degrees. If you see anything more than about 13 degrees, um, you know, because there's, there's a little uncertainty in my measurements. If you see anything over about 13 degrees or so, um, just stop. Pull the plug and we'll come in the next day and we'll figure it out. But odds are pretty good that if you see anything much bigger than I expect, you've gone off course. Uh, you can also put similar limits on the yaw and the amount of northerly tilt and the amount of that the wheels should deflect as they're going over stuff. So if you're expecting to go over flat terrain, um, you might make that, you might kind of set that more conservatively than if you know you're going over lots of rocks and things like that. Um, uh, broadly, again, broadly, um, uh, they did a good job with that on Mer, and they kind of learned the lessons and copied a lot of that stuff over from Mer. Um, this rover can do a few things that we either couldn't do or that were cumbersome to do on Mer. Um, for example, uh, looking at the, uh, the, the amount of current draw, um, that's going into the wheels or, uh, the, 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 the rate at which you're turning versus the rate at which you expect to turn. There's a few little safety limits like that that we can tweak. But again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, they, they did it pretty well on Murr and they were smart enough not to screw it up on this Rover. Um, so they've, they've made some little improvements here and there, and those improvements are very welcome. Um, but it's kind of broadly the same and, 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 uh, lessons that you learn from the old, uh, uh, rover broadly apply to the new rover as well. So what you're doing is you're sending up a, a batch of commands and and procedures that, for instance, with Curiosity, that Curiosity is going to follow. And then if everything runs successfully, if there's no unexpected uh, alerts or or problems that come back, then when you come into work the next day, you'll find out that Curiosity is where you expect her to be. Is that kind of a good summary? That's kind of the that's kind of the idea. So um, uh, basically, the way we we drive the rovers, you, you have the right idea that we kind of have to do a day at a time. And in case your listeners don't know why we have to do a day at a time, let me just uh, uh, talk about that briefly, if I may. We would really love it if we were able to just drive the rovers interactively. Um, that is, if somebody you know put a video game controller in my hand and I could push forward on the the controller and the rovers would go, and I would let go of the controller and the rovers would stop. 
uh, that would be ideal and it would be a wonderful situation. The reason that we don't do that is light time delays. The plants are so far apart from each other that even if you if you push forward and your radio signal leaves your joystick right away and it starts going to the rover at the speed of light, um, even when the planets are as close to each other as they get, effectively right next to each other in the night sky, it will take four minutes or so for a signal to get there. And then even if the rover sends you back a signal right away telling you, okay, I'm going in response to your command, it takes another four minutes for the signal to get back. So just imagine that you're trying to back your car out of your driveway with that kind of delay. So you kind of turn around, you look out the back windshield, everything's clear, you step on the gas, and then nothing happens with your car for four minutes. And then when your car does start moving, you don't know about it because your windshield doesn't start updating for another four minutes beyond that. Now, even if there's nobody else on the road, you're going to have a tough time driving to the store. And remember that that's the best case scenario. That's when Earth and Mars are as close to each other as they get. When they're as far apart from each other as they get on opposite sides of the sun, that one-way light time delay goes up to 20 minutes. Okay, So we can't drive the rovers interactively. Instead, we take advantage of the fact that on Mer, our rovers are solar powered and they got to shut down for the Martian night anyway. And so when the rovers are at the end of their day, they send us back pictures and other data telling us kind of what the world around them looks like and what they've done for the day. And the rover goes to sleep. And while the rover is sleeping through the Martian night, uh, that's when I and my team are working. So we're basically planning out the rover's entire next day. Um, so we take all those pictures and data and we put them into a video game-like world. So now we have a video game-like world inside of our Linux workstations that we can communicate with. And we make a uh, software model of the rover drive around inside of that world. So effectively now we have our joystick. Now we have a rover that we can drive around interactively. And when we get the simulated rover doing what we want the real rover to do, um, bearing in mind the simulation can diverge from reality and part of the art of the job is um, figuring out where stuff like that can happen, where the rover is going to do something different from what you want. Um, but when, when we get the uh, simulated rover doing what we want the real rover to do, the entire team takes a look at all the commands that made it do that. We look at those commands twice. If we still can't find anything wrong with them, we send those commands up to the rover. We go home and go to sleep, and the rover um, operates for the whole day. So the rover basically spends its entire day carrying out the commands that we came up with it uh, with for it uh, through the night. Another part of the art of the job, so part of the art of the job, as I said, is, is figuring out all the ways in which um, the rover might diverge from you know, what the simulation is doing. Another part of the art of the job is that you have to think about in advance about all the things that might go wrong because if something goes wrong in the middle of the day, nobody's going to be there to see it. Nobody's going to be there to hit the panic switch and, and shut the rover down. So you have to think about all the things that could possibly go wrong with the rover and make sure that you've come up with a good response to all of them before anything happens. Um, we did a, a, a great example of that the other day. We were um, on uh, tricky soil with opportunity, and we were kind of driving along this, um, this terrain. And at the end of the, the drive, we wanted to turn and face our science target. Um, and we put a check into the sequence that said, if you're too close to the science target, when you reach this point where you're going to turn, don't turn because you might be too close to like run that you're going to actually run a wheel over the science target during the turn. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Opportunity decided that she was by two centimeters. She was too close to the, uh, the target. And so she decided not to do that turn. And it's a good thing that we thought of that because if we didn't think of that, then maybe, you know, as she did this turn, she would have actually obliterated the science target. I love, by the way, that part of my job is thinking about issues of, you know, 
uh, two centimeters is about one inch for those of you who are metrically challenged. We're thinking about issues of one inch on something that's 100 million miles away. We're thinking about things of, on the order of, you know, centimeters or even millimeters and, you know, a couple of degrees or that kind of thing. But that's the level of precision we have to get up to to get our job right. Going along with what you're talking about with not, um, you know, not damaging any possible science targets. How involved are you with some of these science experiments on board, knowing that you have to control the rover to get them close enough and to pick up the samples for them? Well, we have a great relationship with the science team. Um, we uh, uh, on on Mur. It's it's one of the things that's really uh, uh, heartwarming to me, for lack of a better term. Um, I I'm not a scientist. I'm an engineer, but I'm a big fan of science, and I love the fact that I get to you know my job is I get to make. Um, make it possible for the science team to do what they want. And we're basically working with them through the entire day. We kind of tag up with them at the beginning of the day and then several more times during the day. Um, they stay on a teleconference line. So if we have any questions or anything, we can just like turn around and ask them at any time. Um, and they're terrific to work with. They're smart and they're interesting and they're funny. And part of the great thing to me, uh, speaking as a, a, a fan of science, is um, they love to talk about what they do. And so you can, you know, um, uh, you can ask anybody at any point, hey, why are these clay minerals interesting? Um, or, uh, or, or, you know, why, why are we looking at this target? Or, you know, or uh, sometimes, you know, kind of, kind of what is it that you guys are looking for in this area? Because we're looking at the images every day and maybe we can find something that would be of interest to you and kind of help pick it out for you. That's happened once in a while. Um, we have, this, we have this great kind of ongoing relationship with the science team, and, and part of the fun for this mission for me um, has been, you know, over the course of eight years, I've gotten probably probably about half of an undergraduate level education in geology just as a side effect of working on this mission and asking lots of stupid questions all the time. And, and because our science team is so nice and they answer my stupid questions all the time, I learn a lot. It's great. Hey, Scott, um, I had a question with reference to one of the, the evil devices <laughs> that are on MSL. Um, I believe this thing's equipped with a laser. Yeah, that's so, the, yeah, that's the, that's a really cool thing about this. And the thing that makes it the most fun for me to work on this project is this rover has a laser on its head. So it actually has a Martian self-defense mechanism. <laughs> um, other than, than, than trying to ward off uh, nasty Martians, what is, yeah. what is, what is the, uh, the laser going to be used for when, uh, when you're on site? Um, well, the laser uh, the laser uh, comes coupled with an instrument um, that uh, basically what, what what you can do with it is you zap a rock at some distance, and when you zap that rock with the laser, stuff comes off of the rock as a result. And uh, the instrument that's coupled with the laser can read that stuff that comes off of the rock, and so it can tell you what the rock is made out of. And that can tell you whether it's interesting enough to like trying to drive over and like explore the rock up close or um, or you don't need to do that. Um, and of course, it just has you know science value in itself of being able to tell you what the rock is for a target that you might not be able to afford the time to go over and take a look at close enough. You can kind of get a sense of okay, what is this stuff around us made out of? Um, so that's that's the science purpose of the laser. Um, obviously, for me, the the purpose of the laser is you're shooting stuff with a laser on another planet. How is that not awesome? <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, what, what, how, now, now you've obviously learned lessons from, uh, from building the, the, uh, uh, you know, from building spirit and opportunity. Um, can you speak up to the robustness of MSL and how long do you think, you know, again, it's one of those betting against the Rover questions, right. but once you, you, you sort of survive that reentry and, uh, and that deployment, which I'm still going to be biting my nails on, uh, um, 
Yeah. How long do you, th- what, what is the expected lifetime of, uh, of curiosity on Mars? Um, well, the expected lifetime is, uh, it was designed for a Martian year. So that's about two earth years on Mars. Um, and the hope is that, uh, within this, uh, two Martian years, we'll be able to get, um, off of this little shelf that we land on down in this little valley and then climb way up this hill, uh, um, uh, which is the, 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 just a vast amount of exposed stratigraphy, um, which, by the way, is like a, a Martian history book. So, so the layers in rocks are like pages in a book. And so we'll be able to read more pages in this book than we've ever been able to read before. And then at the far end of that, we hope, is um, uh, phyllosilicate clays, very much like the ones that uh, Opportunity, uh, we hope, is going to uh, uh, take a whack at very soon. Um, uh, so that's the expected lifetime of this rover. Um, I am... Uh, uh, ill-equipped to judge the robustness of this rover um, just because I'm not a hardware guy. Um, I'm a software guy. So if it's, uh, you know, if it's, if it's made out of ones and zeros, I can make it sing. But if it's made out of atoms, uh, I just have no clue with it. Um, I just the other day installed a uh, toilet paper holder in my house and I was like really super proud of myself that I was able to do that. Um, <laughs> so, so that's the level of, you know, that's the level of hardware engineering that I do. And again, just to, to let people know, gang, this is not a search for life <coughs> mission. If, if I'm correct on that, because I've seen that in in some articles in the press out there. And I, I want to make sure that, again, this is not a search for life mission. This is a, um, this is a whole right. different mission altogether. That's exactly right. Uh, none of these are search for life missions. Uh, this rover does not have powerful enough instrumentation uh, on board to detect life directly. This is a uh, it's, it's useful to kind of take a step back and look at what the Mars program as a whole has been doing, you know, since the 1970s when we first went there with Viking. The concept is to kind of build this very kind of slow, painstaking um, series of observations that uh, Mars once had a habitable environment. That's what we're really trying to do here. And so we're looking for evidence of past water on Mars and other evidence that Mars once had a a habitable environment. Um, And that's a step in the process of being able to talk about, you know, past life on Mars. But it is not the whole process. Um, it, it helps you do things like um, evaluate the evidence that we find in the Allen Hills meteorites and things like that. Um, if we were able to definitively prove that there had never been water on Mars, um, then that would be a real blow to the discovery of um, what we think is possibly discovery of life on Mars, because at least as far as we know, life depends on water. So you would, it would at least constrain the problem, or you would have to say, okay, this is, this is life that somehow made it in the absence of water. Um, Instead, happily, uh, what we seem to be finding is um, that Mars did have a habitable environment. It had a thicker atmosphere. It had lots of water standing on its surface. Um, There is no particular reason to think that there is any life on Mars today, but there may have been in the distant past. Uh, There there may have been a chance for life to form on Mars in the distant past. And one of the great things about this, by the way, um, is um, the, the question of life on Mars. I mean, it's a very grand question, right? And we're very privileged to be living at a time in history where we're able to ask, ask questions like that and where we're able to kind of do the scientific work to explore the answers to questions like that. Um, but the great thing about a question like that is you get terrific results whether the answer to that question is yes or no. That is, whether there was life on Mars or not. If there was life on Mars, then you can ask, well, what happened to it? Where did it go? Um, is it still there? And if not, what happened to it? And could what happened there happen here? What do we need to do on this planet to make sure that we don't suffer the same kind of disaster or catastrophe that might have happened to life on Mars? And if the answer is no, if there never was life on Mars, especially if we know that had a chance, as we now do thanks to the MER rovers, 
But if we if we prove that there never was life on Mars, but it had a chance to form there, well, well, why not? Why didn't life take place there? And what does that potentially tell us about the general prevalence of life in the universe and whether we might be alone? Um, so this is one of the great things about that question is it's one of the most profound questions that there is, whether the answer to it is yes or no. All right. So I believe at this point it's time for the final question, which we pose to every single one of our guests. And it's usually the hardest question out there. Okay. All right. Brace yourself. All right. I'm braced. I'm sitting down. If people want to find out more about you or what you're doing, where can they go? If people want to find out more about the mission, um, you can go to marsrovers.jpl.nasa.gov. Um, that has the MER rovers um, and uh, links to uh, MSL as well. Um, every picture, by the way, that comes back from the uh, the MER rovers goes up on that website within hours of receipt. And so that's a great way, a great place, kind of centralized place to keep up with the mission. Um, as for me personally, I am uh, under my own name, Scott Maxwell, on Google+. I am uh, Mars Rover Driver uh, on uh, Twitter, and uh, I uh, um, talk about the rovers and other stuff uh, there all the time. Um, and I love talking about this stuff with people. And, uh, you know, anytime, anytime you want to find me, uh, again, under my own name, Google Plus or Mars Rover Driver on Twitter, um, I, I, I love doing this stuff. And I love kind of connecting with people and, and uh, what I hope is uh, very effectively sharing my enthusiasm. I would say that's that's an understatement. Sharing your enthusiasm, you can just and <laughs> everything you do, you can just tell that you're really excited about it, and that's what makes it so great. <laughs> oh, that that's coming through. Okay, good. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and it certainly came through here today as well. So thank you, Scott, so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for, so much for having me on. It was really great talking to you again. I really appreciate it. Scott Maxwell, once again, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you as well for joining us, Gene McCulka. So, Ed, more fun than a human being is allowed to have, and I hope I, our, our listeners also did. That was just a, a fun time, and it's always always great to have a, an individual on the program that is just so enthusiastic about what he does. So, again, thanks a whole bunch, Scott Maxwell, and I hope to see you soon. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Kind of makes me wonder if it's too late in life to pick up a new career field and start having fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. And thank you as well for listening, and as always... Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.